Hey, welcome to Breitbart News Daily. Thanks for being here. We spent the first hour of the show talking a bit about Sylvia, talking about Native Americans blowing in your face, uh, talking about how there's no need for elections anymore because the computer chip in your brain will know how you would vote. So we can just plug it all into the algorithm and just be done with it already. That's what they're talking about at Davos. All good stuff. Um, that was the first hour. I want to present to you here the first segment of the second hour of the program. This argument here briefly make sure we're on the same page with this brett stevens brett stevens is the conservative columnist at the new york times and he wrote an article the other day called the case for trump by someone who wants him to lose the case for trump by someone who wants him to lose okay so brett stevens hate he hates trump but he's going through the, the very healthy exercise of trying to steal man. So here's what he said. Um, he said, Trump's going to be the nominee. Lord, help us. What should those of us who have consistently opposed him do? He said, you can't defeat an opponent, opponent if you refuse to understand what makes him formidable. Too many people, especially progressives, fail to think deeply about the enduring sources of his appeal and to do so without calling him names or disparaging his supporters or attributing his resurgence to nefarious foreign actors or the unfairness of the Electoral College. And since I'll spend the year coming strenuously opposing his candidacy, let me here make the best case for Trump that I can. So it's very good. This is a very good thing to do. You should be able to steal man everyone's argument. Right? A straw, straw man is when you take someone's argument, you either take the weakest argument they have and you crush it, or you take their argument and you make it weak and then you crush it. That's what everyone does all the time. Everyone straw mans all the time. What you need to do is you need to be able to steel man an argument. You need to be able to take someone's argument, make it better than they make it. You, may, you take someone's argument and say, okay, so what you're saying is, and then you, you re-articulate it to the point where they say, yeah, that's, that's, actually, that's actually perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. It's, <laughs> Wow, that's actually better than I could say it myself. Yeah, that's what I said. Then you crush their argument. But only after you've built it up better than they made it themselves. And once, if you can do that, you're unstoppable. I, was, I, was, I mentioned, I think I said the other day, we were reading The Atlantic or something. The Atlantic was talking about why Trump's the worst. And, and their arguments were awful. I said, guys, I could write a better argument as to why Trump shouldn't be president than these people. These midwits, they're not even good at attacking Trump. They hate him so much, they, they're not even good at that. And on the other side, we should be able to make arguments as to why Biden's the best person for the job. If you were tasked with that mission, you have to, you have to write an editorial or make five arguments or whatever as to why Biden's the best person to be president. We should all be able to do that. You should be able to do that to the point where the Biden supporter says, yes, wow, that's actually a really good point. <laughs> that's great, yeah, that's, yeah, you're right. Then you crush it. But that's the, you got to be able to do that. So Brett Stevens, I think, is, is doing uh, an honest-to-goodness attempt at that. All right. So let's, uh, we'll give him credit there. All right, here's the part I want to talk about. Begin with fundamentals. Trump got three big things right, or at least more right than wrong. 
Arguably the single most important geopolitical fact of the century is the mass migration of people from south to north and east to west, causing tectonic, demographic, cultural, economic, and ultimately political shifts. Trump understood this from the start of his presidential candidacy in 2015. The same year, Europe was overwhelmed by a largely uncontrolled migration from the Middle East and Africa. As he said, a nation without borders is not a nation at all. We must have a wall. The rule of law matters. Brett Stevens went on to say that many on the left don't even think unchecked migration is a bad thing at all. They don't even see it as a problem. Some of them see it as an opportunity to demonstrate their humanitarian humanitarianism. So these are people who don't think that it's like, oh, I think open borders is great. It's their opportunity to demonstrate their humanitarianism. Others look at it as an inexhaustible source of cheap labor. They also have the habit of denouncing those who disagree with them as racist. But enforcing control at the border, whether through a wall, a fence, or some other mechanism, isn't racism. It's a basic requirement of statehood and peoplehood, which any nation has an obligation to protect and cherish. All right, so Czech was way ahead of the game on this one, way ahead of most people. He saw it coming and acted accordingly. So that's an easy one. All right, so Brett Stevens, Czech, well done. Agree with that. Steel manned that very well. Good job, Brett. Here's where he missed it. This is the one that's totally off, if I may. He said the second big thing Trump got right was about the broad direction of the country. Trump rode a wave of pessimism to the White House. Pessimism. Pessimism, his detractors, did not share because he was speaking about and to an America they either didn't see or understand only as a caricature or, or understood only as a caricature. All right, so Trump was, Trump was pessimistic and he, his pessimism was appealing to people that progressives didn't understand because I guess progressives are very optimistic so they, they don't, progressives don't see, uh, didn't see the pessimism that Trump was speaking to. But just as with this year when liberal elites insist that things are going well, while overwhelming majorities of Americans say they are not, Trump's unflattering view captured the mood of the country. Hmm. Trump's pessimism. He rode a wave of pessimism. Did he? Now, we've talked about despair before. There's a term called deaths of despair. That's not good. We've talked about rising, the rising death rate of middle-aged white men. Not good. Just yesterday we mentioned that there's 7 million able-bodied men, able-bodied 25 to 40-year-old men who are not working and not even looking for work. Not good. There's something deeply wrong here. 1% of adult males have a felony conviction. That's not good. Only 36% of Americans think that the American dream still holds true. And there was another, I forget exactly, but I think it was like another 30-something percent think that it never held true. We spent weeks on that topic. Brett Stevens said, if anything, Trump's thesis may be truer today than it was the first time he ran on it. But I want to sit on this for a second. I don't think it's pessimism. And I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm nitpicking here, but words matter. And I, I, I fear that if we, if we let that narrative go on, that Trump and Trump supporters are a bunch of pessimists 
Or let's just do some, if we let the narrative go on that Trump supporters are a bunch of pessimists and Trump is popular because he's tapping into that pessimism. If we allow that to go on, I think we undermine a major virtue of the conservative movement. And that is our optimism. And that is the, the fact of being a happy warrior. Happy warriors are not pessimists. And pessimists are not happy warriors. I don't think we're pessimists. The etymology of the word pessimism is from the Latin word pessimus, meaning the worst. The worst. Uh, this is uh, <clears throat> from the original dictionary. Webster's Dictionary. Webster's Dictionary, 1828.com. Uh, worst condition possible. Point of great deterioration. As a name given to the metaphysical doctrines of Schopenhauer, that this is the worst possible world, or that anything tend, everything tends towards evil. Tendency to exaggerate in thoughts the evils of life or to look only on the dark side. All right, so who's this Schopenhauer guy? So Schopenhauer is a German philosophy. His philosophy was called uh, philosophical pessimism, which says that life is not worth living. Life is so bad, life is so awful, it's not worth living. And they don't advocate for suicide, but they do advocate that you shouldn't have more kids. And this, this philosophical pessimist worldview believes that the bad prevails over good and that life is more misery than pleasure and not being is better than being. It's called philosophical pessimism. And uh, We don't need to go any deeper into it now, but just know that's it. That is not the conservative's nature. That is not in the conservative's nature. That is not who, that's not who I am. And I don't think it's who we are. In fact, quite the opposite. The conservative wants to conserve because he or she thinks that there is something worth conserving. When they tear down the statue of Thomas Jefferson, the conservative doesn't like that because we say that thing is good. That statue and what that statue represents is good. It's the progressive who doesn't think it, the statue itself or even the, what it stands for, doesn't think it's worth conserving. So they tear it down. Who's the pessimist? It is not in a conservative's nature to be a pessimist. We conserve because things are worth conserving. Now, if you could add up all the good and all the bad in the world, maybe, maybe if you, if you like did a mathematical equation, you'd end up where there's more bad in a broken world, perhaps, whatever, however you would quantify that. But still, the conservative concludes it's worth it. That's not pessimistic. The good, the beautiful, the true, even in a world full of lies where Satan is the God of the world. Did we mention the other day, we mentioned Demi Lovato's pro-abortion song called Swine? Jeez. <laughs> uh, where there's a lot of ugliness and a lot of evil. The good, the beautiful, and the true are worth it. And life is worth living. And it's worth making more people. 
And it's worth fighting for. It's worth protecting. It's worth defending. It's worth caring about. And a pessimist wouldn't come to those conclusions. Conservatives are not pessimists. So what are we? Where did Brett Stevens miss him? I think conservatives are realists. Conservatives are realists. We have a firm understanding of what is. That's very important. Conservatives believe that we live in a fallen world. Yes. But conservatives also believe in redemption. And that's what the pessimists don't have. That's what the woke don't have. Wokeism is a religion. And uh, has all the trappings of religions, but it doesn't have redemption. There's no redemption in the woke religion. Communism doesn't have redemption. There's no redemption for these people. That's pessimistic. That you're doomed. You're doomed to this for all of eternity. There's nothing that can be done. That's pessimistic. I don't want to go into We don't need to go into a Christian worldview here, but God says to rejoice always. There's nothing pessimistic about that. Rejoicing always, what's the pessimism? So conservatives aren't pessimistic, Brett. We're realists. We're realists about human nature. Right, that's important. We're realists about the state of our country, the state of our culture. But we believe in redemption and joy. When we talked to John Nolte coming up in 45 minutes. You, talk, you ask John about his wife and they'll tell you, He'll tell you all about a very difficult journey that they've been on for many years. But he'll also tell you about the joy and the triumphs. Even Trump's motto, Trump's motto is MAGA, make America great again. It means that there was once something good that we want to bring back to our lives now. There's nothing pessimistic about that. The pessimistic worldview, which Brett Stevens says you have, do you have it? I mean, one eight six six nine five picture. I mean, maybe Brett Stevens right. Maybe we're like, no, we are a bunch of pessimists or something. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not that. But Brett Stevens says we are. Okay, so that I think that worldview says life is terrible, life is awful. I'm oppressed. Someone else is to blame. Where's that familiar? Where's that? Does that sound familiar? Do you hear that anywhere? Who are the people that say life is awful? I'm oppressed. Who do I blame? Who has that worldview? Life is awful. I'm oppressed. Who do I blame? That's the left's worldview. It's called resentment. Pessimism leads to resentment. Pessimism and resentment in particular is a flesh-eating disease of the soul. We've talked a lot about resentment on this show. Very bad. And that is the core of the left's worldview. That is wokeism. Resentment is wokeism. That was Karl Marx. Karl Marx is a person. Like, that was Karl. Karl... <laughs> Carl was a lot of things. We've never did. We didn't do it. We haven't done our study on Carl yet, have we? We got to do this. Like Carl the guy. Forget about Marxism. What about Carl? Who was that guy? He was a wicked, a wicked, pitiful man. Full of resentment. It makes sense that he came up with his worldview once you know him and his life. But conservatives are not pessimistic. We're not pessimistic when we speak about the state of our country. You know what we do? And, and this is where I think Brett kind of, and I, I get it. I get how you can think. We lament. Mike, hang on the line. I want to take you in just one second. Uh, we lament. Conservatives lament. That's not pessimism, though. 
Laments a wonderful discipline. Laments a really important thing. We need to do more of it. Uh, lament and complaint are different. In the uh, in the Bible, uh oh, Bible, the Psalms, about half of them are laments. Something's gone horribly wrong. People are dying from disease. There's a lot of death and persecution and horrible struggles and the writer is lamenting. But they're not complaints. A complaint is an accusation against God meant to malign his character. A lament is an appeal to God based on the confidence in his character. Let me say it again. A complaint is an accusation against God. Why did you? Meant to malign his character. A lament is an appeal to God based on your confidence in his character. Two totally different things. Which will lead to two totally different outcomes, of course. So I don't think conservatives are pessimistic. Our founders were, were I think we're in line with our founders. Uh, our founders, it's, it's shocking. There's a book, I got it right next to me if you're watching on the TV. Fears of a Setting Sun. There it is. Uh, this is uh, John Adams. Our founders were very uh, lacking of hope <laughs> for our republic, which is pretty shocking, right? They just made the thing. John Adams said in 1776, he says, there's so much rascality. It's a great word. So much venality and corruption, so much avarice and ambition, such a rage for profit and, com profit and commerce among all ranks and degrees of men, even in America, that I sometimes doubt whether there's a public virtue enough to support a republic. Like, I don't think this can go on. I don't, I don't think we're a good enough people. I don't think we can handle this republic thing, he said. But in that same letter, you know what he ended it with? He said, may the supreme ruler of events overrule in our favor. I got another good one here. This is uh, 1806. My property is small and the remainder of my life is short. But oh, my country, how I mourn over thy follies and vices, thine ignorance and imbecility, thy contempt of wisdom and virtue, an overweening admiration of fools and knaves. <laughs> that's great. Right, that, that's conservative. Like that's, that's like this show. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Like, oh, how we mourn over our, this country and our follies and vices and ignorance and imbecility, contempt of wisdom, contempt of virtue, admiration of fools and knaves, the never-failing effects of democracy. So John Adams says, he's like, this is it. Like, this is what democracy leads to. The never failing effects of democracy. You, you, you want a democracy? This is what you get. John Adams says, I once thought our constitution was quasi a, 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 a mixed government, but they have now made it to all intents and purposes in virtue, spirit, and effect a democracy. And he lamented that. This is bad. So what do we do? John Adams says, what do we do? We are left without resources, but in our prayers and tears. And have nothing that we can do or say, but the Lord have mercy upon us. 
And as I used to say in the time of the revolution, in moments of critical distress, with too much levity, I fear, and too little serious consideration, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. I really believe I now say it with more serious impressions. That's not whining and complaining. That is a strong lament from John Adams. What is, what is going on in our country? And he says I, he says, I can only conclude that I must stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. That's not pessimism. I'll give you one more. Thomas Jefferson, this is near the end of his life. He says, I regret that I am now to die in the belief that the useless sacrifice of themselves by the generation of 1776 to acquire self-government and happiness to their country is to be thrown away by the unwise and unworthy passions of their sons. And that my only consolation is to be that I live not to weep over it. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson at the end of his life thought that this country was ruined. So it's okay to look at the state of our country today and weep. Thomas Jefferson did in 1820. Thomas Jefferson is looking, he's like, oh, the, the, what the men of 1776 did and how their stupid idiot sons have ruined <laughs> I'm glad I'm dying so I don't have to see the, the ultimate death of my country that I helped build. He said that 1820. It's okay for us to weep over the state of our country today, but that's a lament. That's not pessimism. And there's a political solution to that lament. There's the spiritual one, of course, but there's the political one as well. We want to make America great again. That's not what pessimists say. Mike is in New York. Mike, thanks for hanging on, brother. How you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. What's on your mind? Are you a pessimist, Mike? No, I'm not. And, uh, I don't believe Donald Trump, we wrote in uh, because he was a pessimist. It, for me, he was an optimist. He gave us hope. He, we, we realized he was someone that was going to go against the system for us, take the money out of their pocket, put the money in our pocket. He wasn't going to buckle to those that were trying to oppress us. I guess that's not a word we're supposed to use unless we're you know, on the left. They get all oppressed. And he believed in God. And that's what they also don't like because they don't believe in God because God also gives us hope. So anything that gives us hope is bad. But anything we can take hope away, that's good for them. Mm. I'm not saying Donald Trump is God. He's, nobody is. What I'm saying is he believes in God. He believed in the Jewish state. He believed in us as people. And that's what gave us hope because he said, yeah, we can make America great. And what did the other one say? America was never great. Mm. That's why we that's why we wrote in on Trump, not because he was pessimistic. Well done, Mike. Perfect. Breitbart News Daily. I always look forward throughout the week to get to the end of it 
so that we can talk to John Nolte, as we did today. John, how are you today, sir? Good morning. I'm good. Thank you. Happy Friday to everyone. And to you. Uh, soon as, by the way, author of the novel Borrowed Time, which you can buy on Amazon and everywhere, Borrowed Time, um, as soon as the news that John Stewart was coming back to The Daily Show on Mondays, every Monday he'll host, and he's the executive producer the rest of the time, and it's from now, or like I think February 12th, until the election. What do we think about John Stewart? He is, uh, I think he's burnt out. Whatever, whatever fire he had, you know, during the during the early Bush years or during the, you know, the aughts as they call it, it's just gone now. He's he's gone. He sold out his comedy uh, with his show on Apple, which nobody watched and was canceled after two seasons. You know, he just turned into this woke tyrant. It's very difficult for me to see him recapturing any kind of the ma- any kind of the magic that he had. And, he, and and to be honest, he didn't have much magic, even when he was so-called hot on the on the Daily Show, because nobody watched. You know, he got maybe two million viewers, but the media liked what he had to say. The corporate media would inflate um, him into a phenomenon, with, which was totally artificial because no one watched his show. But they would re- replay his clips because he would bash Bush or fall in love with Obama, and he was useful to the media. So he was very much a media creation. But he's going into this spent. I think he's just spent now, and, and uh, it's, it's kind of pathetic that he had to slink back like this after failing at HBO and failing as a movie director and failing at uh, Apple TV. It was a four-year deal with HBO, right? And yeah, he was after two. never. Yeah, never. And it, he never produced anything. I mean, if he, I should say he never produced anything that made it to the air, whatever he produced was obviously so abysmal that HBO didn't want any part of it. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so when I, when I saw John Stewart do well at the Daily Show, <clears throat> whatever well means like as a cultural phenomenon, certainly whether deserved or not, I think you, in one of your articles, you said he got about 1.3 million viewers. And was just crushed by swamp people, um, like the show Swamp. <laughs> not literally crushed by swamp, but the show Swamp People got like three <laughs> x the viewers as John Stewart. Um, and then goes to, you know HBO gets nothing, and Apple TV like like didn't make a mark. And to me, it was like, oh, like really, life and your career is like about timing, and just where you happen to be. Because like, why would why would what he did work at Comedy Central? but not work over on Apple TV. It was a sh- similar shtick standing behind a desk doing his thing. Why did it work one place and not work another? It worked at Comedy Central because merit isn't necessary at Comedy Central to succeed. Apple TV survives on subscribers. HBO subscribes uh, s- survives on subscribers. You have to want to watch Apple TV and you have to want to watch HBO for either of those networks to make any money or not networks, but the streaming service with a network to make any money. That's merit-based. Comedy Central is part of everyone's cable package. So if you subscribe to cable TV, if you're someone who is still subscribing to cable or satellite TV, Comedy Central is part of your package. Nobody watches Comedy Central. The ratings for The Daily Show are down to about 350000 now. But because you're subscribing to cable TV, Comedy Central... All these left-wing net networks, MSNBC, CNN, ESPN, 
they get a huge chunk of your bill. That's why your cable bill is so high. So if 60 million people are subscribing to cable and just say $2 a month of your $150 bill is going to Comedy Central, I don't know exactly what it is. They're making $120 million a month, which is $2, which is a reasonable assumption that has nothing to do with merit because Comedy Central does not survive, neither does CNN, on merit, which would be advertising dollars based on viewership. And that's how these fake networks, these 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 very unpopular and disregarded and loathed networks stay in business. It's the cable TV racket. What was it about Jon Stewart and his shtick that appealed to the elites, that appealed to that the, the cultural influences of our country that, that would push out his clips uh, and, and mock conservatives like he did? Well, he, you know, he, he's not untalented. No one can say that. And I remember him doing his thing on the on the Larry Sanders show. He was just brilliant on the Larry Sanders show. But as a comedian, he served the elite. He served the establishment. They hated Bush. He hated Bush. They hated Cheney. He hated Cheney. So he could develop these monologues and tell us this is comedy. And that allowed the media. You would see him on CNN all the time. They would play a clip. And they would say, oh, here's some fun comedy. They would pretend it was comedy. When it wasn't, it was propaganda. And that was how, uh, that was how he served them. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I would say that of the people who lamented the division in our country, I think Jon Stewart was a mate. Did I lose yeah. you? Check one, two. You're... Okay. Sorry I, about I can, that. I can hear yeah, you some, now. Can I, you hear no me? problem. No problem. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, sorry, as I was. Um, the people lament the division in our country. So do I. I think one of the major causes of that is was John Stewart. Is that overselling Definitely. it? No, not at all. The Stewart is one of the people who created the us against them mentality. The we're good, you're stupid mentality. Yes, yes. Um, That's it. And, and and that and he and he blossomed hundreds of John Stewart, Samantha B, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon. They're all they're all they all take that same approach where where you and I are crazy or we're stupid or we're racist and everything everyone else is virtuous. And that was that was the line that he created. Um, and then, every, and, you know, in the news media, that's what the news media turned into. Everybody wanted to yes. be Jon Stewart. And you, you just you see it on CNN. You see it with Jake Tapper. You see it with Wolf Blitzer. You see it with Rachel Maddow and that and that crew. And that mentality just took over popular culture. And news in the news media today is just part of popular culture, the corporate media. I don't remember much of college, but I, I distinctly remember a seminar I was in with uh, Stephen Brill was the professor. He's the founder of Court TV. So it's a seminar. So there were like 12 of us or something. And the girl next to me, I distinctly remember this. There's like, again, there's very few like college moments I distinctly remember. This is one of them. And she proudly, triumphantly stated I get my news from the Daily Show. Right. And this was right in the and midst that, of it would have been two thousand five or so, right? Like in his heyday. It's like what? What do you mean? And that was true for you would talk to young people and those that did get their news, they would get it from the Daily Show, and he would he would just feed them virtue. You're virtuous if you agree with me. You're smart if you agree with me. You're sophisticated if you agree with me. And he was you know, basically molding these young minds. And I've no doubt that that's 
part of the issue we're dealing with today with these idiotic millennials that are out protesting against Israel. Um, you know, they side with Hamas, but if you ask them any deep questions, they can't answer them. You know, I, I, when I started taking on John Stewart at Breitbart, a lot of people on our side liked him because they just thought he was funny, and he was funny. There's no question yeah. about that. Yeah. But I just saw right through him. And I remember that, you know, John Stewart's whole shtick was, I want to stop division. And then Glenn Beck did this thing where he went to the, and this is at the height of Glenn Beck's powers. He went to the National Mall and he hosted a very popular um, uh, program that thousands and thousands of people showed up to where he just talked about what's great about America and the founding principles that he had people there from all walks of life. And it was a very, it was, it was apolitical. It was, it was, it wasn't at all partisan. Beck really handled that well. And then John Stewart mocked that, and he put on his own program. Took at the same spot yes. in D.C. at the mall that that uh, that uh, that Glenn Beck did, and he just ridiculed it. And that's when I saw it through John Stewart. That's when I yes. knew the guy was a phony. You're right. It was Glenn Beck's <clears throat> rally to restore honor, and John Stewart had the rally to restore sanity and/or fear. That's right. Oh, exactly. Man. And I, that's when I knew John Stewart was an absolute phony and a partisan. And I never looked back after that because he exposed uh, himself because Glenn Beck did nothing partisan, did nothing wrong. If John Stewart was who he said he was, he would have appreciated what Beck did. Mm, they would have gone there, spoke to it. Um, yeah, great point. And then the guys of, oh, I'm just a comedian. He always falls back behind that one. So, so see through that. That's not what he is, first and foremost. Um, well, let's go to real media. So L.A. Times is in uh, major trouble here. They fired a bunch of people, and it's owned by a billionaire, and he, fun he put a billion dollars into the L.A. Times, and they still can't make it work. How should we feel about this? Should we lament the demise of the L.A. Times or, or what? No, I mean, these, the, the, the people who work at the L.A. Times hate us. So I don't, I don't have any, I'm not going to feign crocodile tears. And, <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie anyways because I'm not going to lie about how I feel. Um, and I don't mind these people losing their jobs. And you have to look at what the media is today. It's not what it was when I was growing up, where you had uh, people in positions who had worked, who came from real life, um, who worked the police beat, who pumped gas to get through college, if, if they even went through college. You know, they knew what real life was like. They'd grown up on farms, and they'd, they'd grown up in working-class households. And today's media class it's just the biggest spoiled bunch of thin-skinned crybabies. They've never done an honest day's work in their life. They all live in the cities. They're all 20 years old. They have no real-world experience. Everything they learn, they learn from books, and they think they know everything. And these are these, they're a cancer on our country. And and they nothing is going to be better for our country or for these people as individuals than to feel uh, uh, than to taste failure. Their, their little glide path is all of a sudden taken away from them. And now they're going to taste failure, and maybe they're going to have to go out to the real world and learn something about real life. And if they go back into journalism, maybe they'll be better journalists. We, on, on the idea of believing the media, uh, we've been making a, much, uh, making a lot of this clip of the 74-year-old woman at the New Hampshire primaries, and she was walking out, and CNN interviewed her, and she seems like just a sweet old lady, John. I bet she makes a delicious apple pie. And <laughs> I, I'm calling her Sylvia, uh, Grandma Sylvia. She's really, really nice. And she voted for Nikki Haley because 
she believes in a stronger NATO. <laughs> so, so like, like, and, and we, we spent a little bit of time like dunking her like points, but like, that's not what I really wanted to speak to. Like she was just factually wrong about stuff, which is fine. But the sweetness of Sylvia is fascinating because she thinks the world is what it was 40 years ago. And she thinks Walter Cronkite was, uh, was an honest newsman and the way news used to be. And, uh, like I, I, I will repeat this point because they said it on the nightly news and why would, why would anyone at the nightly news tell a lie? And still like very trusting of, of people and things. And I think this is a major part of the electorate. What do you say to the sweet Sylvia's without destroying their innocence <laughs> of humanity? Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult because they, in the same way that John Stewart told young people to suspend their critical thinking and just choose, you know, this means you're good and this means you're bad. People that are a little older than I am, um, the boomers, they came to very much trust Walter Cronkite. They trust the establishment. They trust their institutions. I think a lot of them are waking up from that now. Um, luckily, I'm Generation X. We trusted nothing. We just had a good time. <laughs> and, and, but that, you know, that's why we're the healthiest, mentally healthiest population out there. We have thick skins, you know, and, and it's, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have grown up in that era. But I think that reality crashes eventually with what people believe. Now, some people are going to hang on to that no matter what. But eventually you see your factories close. You see our country being uh, just invaded uh, by what Alex Marlowe brilliantly called Biden's insurrection. And that's exactly what it is. Um, and people are just waking up. And if you look at the polls right now in the Real Clear Politics poll of polls, Trump is four points ahead of Biden nationally, four points ahead during 2020. Uh, uh, Trump never got closer than four points wow. behind Biden. So people are waking up. The reality, when reality hits, when the reality of the crime and the riots and the border invasion and the inflation, people start thinking, you know, everybody who is a Republican generally has a story about what made them a Republican. And it was, you know, I know the joke about being mugged, but it's often other things. And it's just reality wakes you up and you just can't hold on to those beliefs anymore. Mm. Poor Sylvia. Um, so I want to ask you this. We spent a good half hour on this in the last hour of the show. Uh, Brett Stevens, the conservative at the New York Times, hates Trump and says he'll dedicate the next year to making sure he's not president. But he went through this effort to try to understand the appeal of Trump, as these people often do. And, and one of them he got right, and one of them, I, I think this was a miss. Uh, he said the second big thing Trump got right was about the broad direction of the country. Trump rode a wave of pessimism to the White House. Pessimism, his detractors, progressives, did not share because he was speaking about into an America they either didn't see or understood only as a caricature. So he says that Trump is pessimistic and that conservatives are pessimists. And I just don't think that's true. What, what do you think of that? No, that's totally false. It's, it's not about pessimism. It's just about being heard and wanting to correct things. You know, Trump is our voice as, as flawed as he is. He's our voice. He stands up to these people. He's the guy who went to East Palestine when, when, uh, when, when Biden wouldn't, um, you know, he's, he speaks for us and, you know, no one, 
whenever someone tries to speak for us and we know they don't, we see through them like Mitt Romney and John McCain. And, and, you know, Trump may be a billionaire. He might've been born on third plate on third base. Um, he might hang out with the supermodels and his apartments are all gold and gaudy, but the guy is, the guy listens. He, he cares for us. And, and he's, and that we see him as, as someone is our hope against all of the damage that's being done to our country by the left, which is and the left today is much worse than it was in 2016 when, when Trump first ran for office. I thought that one of the most effective attacks against Trump that I've heard was it was one of them. I don't know if it was Scarborough or who's the guy who used to throw the paper at the camera at the end of the show on MSNBC. Uh, well, I think that was, was that Olberman? Olberman. That's our I It may have been Olberman. Yeah. Um, one of those guys. And he said, Trump, hey, hey, conservatives, Trump doesn't like you. He doesn't really care about you. He laughs about you behind his back. He thinks you're idiots and this is all a shtick. And he, he doesn't actually, everything you just said is, is not true, they would say. And I thought, oh, that like that, that's a pretty good attack because it's a good attack because it, it's like 100%. Well, you, you would argue it's wrong, right? But, but it's an effective attack because it speaks to the appeal properly right but yeah and think- it, it doesn't make sense to me because if he was if, if he didn't like us he would just pander to us and he doesn't pander to us that's that's something trump never gets credit for is that he doesn't pander to it he leads us he if you watch his speeches he's teaching that's what he's doing he's teaching us he's he's we are his students and he's saying this is what i mean look at how different the republican party is today compared to what it was before he came along He's the one who said it was okay to oppose Iraq. Yes. He's the one who said it was okay to be in favor of tariffs. He's the one who said that that the that these trade laws and, and this free market nonsense that's just gone crazy. He's the one who said corporatism is bad. He he leads us. He doesn't pander to us. You know, Mitt Romney and John McCain they pander to us. So I, that's that's one of the reasons I don't believe it because he's he's often willing to tell us what we don't want to hear. But he makes his case, and then we think, yeah, you know, that makes sense to me now. Maybe I'm not a free trade uh, extremist like I was. Maybe these tariffs are a good idea. So that's one of the reasons I don't believe that. That's such a good point. Plus, he's not, he's not like radically pro-life. And, and like in the sense, he's like, hey, let's just come to like some sort of agreement, which a panderer who didn't, you know, maybe go way far right in that. And then, oh, like, oh, like gay, like, remember there's like that picture of him, like hugging the gay flag or whatever, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like yeah, that's he, not. He held up the gay flag. He, he, uh, he's pro gay marriage. He, he does, he, he doesn't pander to us. He, I mean, I think, mm. I think he panders a little bit with the religion, which is kind of a, it's always kind Two of when he does that. <laughs> yeah. Stuff like that. I think, I think that's a little bit of a pander, but when it comes to policy, you know, who, who overturned Roe v. Wade? It wasn't the evangelist George W. Bush, because Bush gave us all those terrible judges. It was it was Trump. Trump got yeah. Roe v. Wade overturned because he he took it to the wall. He stuck by Kavanaugh when no other Republican would have. He you know his justices are why Roe v. Wade is overturned. So he puts his money where his mouth is. Yeah. He may he may not really understand uh, religion. He may not really be a Christian. I don't know, um, but. He, the policies back it up. Is he, the way you speak of him though, is he a cult leader? Are you a cult member, follower of his? No, I don't, I don't think he's, he has, 
he has the rarest thing in politics, and that's a following. You know, Obama had a following. Mm. Um, and you could accuse a lot of, Ob- you know, people, you know, I remember people writing songs about Obama. Um, I remember when I was in church, this woman wanted me to sign a loyalty pledge to Obama. That's kind of spooky. And I don't see any of that with Trump so much. But, yeah, there are people in the Obama and Trump camps that are a little overboard. But he's not a – no, I don't I – don't, he just has a following. Reagan had a following. George W. Bush never had a following. Mm. Um, uh, Bill Clinton, for all his appeal, never really had a following. And, and that's a very rare thing to have in politics, yeah. a base, uh, a, a devoted base. Kamala Harris. So the Democrats clearly have a Kamala problem. Uh, but I've seen her make a little push here recently. Uh, one weird thing was Katie Couric interviewed her. I don't know where or like why. I don't know what Katie Couric's doing. Uh, but Katie Couric <laughs> interviewed her and said, uh, come, uh, President Harris, Vice President Harris said she's not in charge of the border, which I like. I thought, I thought she was. Like, I thought wasn't she like named like the like the border czar or something? But anyway, um, what what's up with Kamala and their issue there? And uh, she was didn't she do like a town hall the other day? She was on CNN Monday. Uh, she did a CNN primetime interview, and CNN got 332,000 total viewers, <laughs> which is just hilarious because, uh, you know, it, it's not just tells you how bad of shape CNN is in, because CNN is just dying. Um, it tells you how bad of shape Kamala Harris is, and no one, no one is interested in her. But, uh, yeah, Kamala, I think, is trying to increase her visibility. Um, she's obviously interested in being president. She has a long way to go to repair all the damage she did to her image because she's a, 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 she's a very dumb person, and she's got that terrible cackle of a laugh. I don't think she's going to be able to, to resurrect herself, but I think with the election coming up, she would like to be in better shape You know, once, once things really get, get going after Labor Day. That uh, comment about her laugh was very sexist of you, John Nolte. Have you ever said that about a man and, their, and his cackle? Oh, have I? I don't know. I don't know. I don't care if I have or not, but I don't know if I, I don't know if I have, but I, I you know, I mean, I make fun of guys. I mean, ask Chris Christie. <laughs> um, Tucker has a bad laugh. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. It, he's, he's got a good everything else. Yeah. But yeah, the laugh he, was weak. He was asked about it and he said, you know, it's real because there's no way I would do this. <laughs> On purpose, like it's, like it's awful. I, I know how awful, awful it is. Um, John, I want to add, last question. I want to ask you about uh, Gary Graham. You wrote a nice piece about Gary Graham. For those who don't know, who is Gary Graham and why does he matter to us? Well, Gary Graham uh, died uh, at 73, very young last week, I think. Um, he was a very employed actor for about 30 years, and uh, I was a fan of his because he started one of my favorite movies, uh, hardcore in 1970, which also was his Gary Graham's film debut. It was a stunning debut. But Gary was one of the few actors when we launched Big Hollywood in early in January 2009. Was one of the few name actors whose face you would recognize, who said, "Yes, I'm going to do this." And Big Hollywood was nothing then. It was just and the, the Drudge guy was starting a blog and he wanted to to put give conservatives a voice in Hollywood. And everyone knows, everyone knew there was a blacklist. Gary knew there was a blacklist, but he just came out. He wrote a piece called One Pissed Off Dude, and it set the tone for the site, mm. and it was beautiful. Everyone should read it. It was beautifully written. He had an amazing voice. He, he had amazing courage to do that. I think it did hurt his career. Um, 
and uh, he he was vital to the success of our site. A lot of other people were vital, like Robert Davi. We had other people that you know that John Voigt and others, but Gary's. That was his debut piece. I think it was one of the first pieces we put up, if not the first. And that was it. It was, it was our first viral piece, that's for sure. And he was a great guy to work with. He was just a wonderful guy, down-to-earth guy, devoted Christian, wonderful writer, knew who he was, a good man. And, uh, you know, we didn't stay in touch, but uh, I was very sorry to hear of his passing. Very January, sorry. January 6, 2009 is when he wrote that piece. It's still on Breitbart.com, of course. What happened to Drudge and the Drudge Report? I think a fourteen-year-old girl runs it now. <laughs> like, is that is that a are you is that a joker? Like, there's a chance that that may actually be true, but it is such it's, a it's, weird it's website. Hysterical. Right yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the beauty of Drudge was you'd go there and you would learn the news that the media tried to hide because he would read the last paragraph of the New York Times article, and he'd go, "Oh, that's the news," hmm. and then that would be his headline on Drudge, and that was the beauty of Drudge. And now it's just another hysterical left-wing site yeah it's just you might as well just be looking at cnn there's nothing special about it at all i used to check drudge 20 times a day now i i, I don't think i can't I, I think i might have checked it once yesterday if i run out of if i run out of work to do I'll, sometimes <laughs> i'll go to drudge as a last resort to see if i can find something to to write about um but it's not it's no it's nothing like it was yeah, it's a shame weird. it's a big loss yeah yeah how weird uh actually i lied last question so are there any good elvis movies Yes. King Creole is a very good Elvis movie. Wait, wait, which one is it? Sorry. King Creole. Okay. Um, it's a very good Elvis movie. Um, I like Blue Hawaii. I think Blue Hawaii uh, is a lot of fun. And uh, another uh, pretty great Elvis movie that's a lot of fun is um, uh, Follow That Dream. And I'd also recommend Jailhouse Rock. Okay. So you got that's a bunch. That's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of unbelievable garbage in there but those are four pretty good movies <laughs> do we do we do we like elvis do you look back on elvis in, in, in a good way are you pro elvis yeah no i love I, I love elvis i saw him in concert a few what? months before he died my yeah yeah i saw him in concert um i was i was 11 or 12 it was unforgettable my wife and i went to went to um graceland a, a few years ago you know i love elvis the coolest white man who ever lived <laughs> uh how was he in concert like was he was he did he have it still the charisma was off the charts. You, you had chills just being in the same room with him, but he was fat and blue. I remember he was singing and he dropped, he did he couldn't remember the lyrics. So he was what? carrying the paper and then he dropped the paper and he started over again. He was in terrible shape. He would die just a few months later, but the charisma was off the charts. It was unbelievable. What is that? What is charisma? How do you, is there any way to fake charisma or, or grow charisma? Or are you just born with it? No, I mean, the difference, I think the best example, and I'm not insulting anyone, I'm not, because I like Ron DeSantis, but the, the difference between charisma is Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. It, it's just, you're born with it, you can't, you can't grow it. it, you just, either you got it or you don't, and it's the difference between someone who is a super, Obama's got charisma, Bill Clinton's got charisma, this is not partisan. Uh, Reagan had charisma, George George W. Bush did not have charisma, or George H. W. Bush did not have charisma. George W. Bush had a little charisma. Mm. You either got it or you don't. The camera loves you or you don't. It's just. Gosh, and, so is that is people, that bad or is charisma is charisma? So we can say that you need it or you don't. So in that sense, it's good or bad. But is it is it good? Like should should we be electing people based off charisma or not? 
Is it a virtue? Is charisma should not a virtue? Be, no, we should not be, but it's just it's it's yeah. just a fact of life now. Yeah, but yeah. if you have, you know, there's a reason why James Dean made three movies and he's still a legend. It's just the charisma. Mm. John Nolte, charisma oozing through the through the phone as well. Uh, <laughs> on Breitbart.com. And what's the book, John? How do we buy it? Uh, it's called Borrow Time. Um, it's getting amazing reviews from readers. Even the bad reviews are kind of cool because they say <laughs> things like, you know, I had to put it down because there was too much evil, and who doesn't want to read that? Uh, but you can buy it at Amazon. It's, uh, Borrowed Time is available at Amazon.com. And it's okay. and it, and a hardcover edition just came out if people are interested in that. Oh, party on. So do you always recommend the hardcover version of a book? Are you a hardcover guy? No, I just recommend the hardcover version because I make more money on that. <laughs> Fair enough. John Nolte, Borrowed Time, Breitbart.com. Thanks, John. Great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Have a good one. <laughs> Have a good weekend, brother. American made I got American parts I I promise unless there is crazy breaking news this weekend on Monday's show in the I can't promise what time but on Monday's show we will talk about the Afghanistan papers and we it came up the other day we'll reset as to why uh, but your cynicism will just explode to a very healthy level after you hear about how you're just constantly lied to by everyone for 20 years uh, about Afghanistan. It's no different today, of course. So we'll do that on Monday's show. Mike Slater, Breitbart News Daily. Have a great weekend. Spread the word.